In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing. Grant us your peace, O Lord, and grant us always to follow your commandments. Open our hearts to you, O Lord, and help us to understand your word tonight. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, good evening, everybody. God willing, today we're going to continue studying the book of Genesis. Uh, we finished last time uh, in chapter 10, uh, Genesis 10, uh, which was a genealogy. It spoke about the genealogy all the way from Shem, who was the son of Adam and Eve, um, all the way through uh and 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 now we're going to speak about uh all the way through noah and his sons and now we're going to speak about what happens now after this uh after the time of the flood and the time of noah uh what happened to mankind uh after noah in chapter 11 in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit one god amen so the first part here uh, in chapter 11 uh it speaks about uh uh, the Tower of Babel, which is a famous story in the book of Genesis. Um, the next part, we see that there is more genealogy. Uh, and then the very last part, we read about the introduction of Abraham, uh, who is going to be a central focus um, of the book of Genesis, him along with his son Isaac and his son Jacob and the patriarchs, which really the rest of the book of Genesis is going to focus on the events related to these patriarchs, starting with Abraham and the covenant that God makes with Abraham. Um, so we'll start here, starting in verse one, um, initially about the Tower of Babel. So it says, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. So this is referring to the state of mankind up until this point, even from the time of Noah, because again, you know, at the time of Noah, everything reset, everything restarted again. So Noah and his family spoke one language, and this became the, the language or was continued to be the language uh, up until this point in time, okay? Um, some people say that this language that was spoken was the Hebrew language. Uh, other people say it was a Chaldean language, which was uh, Chaldeans were like some the people that came like uh, before the Babylonians um, or the Babylonian people. Um, but we're not really sure what language it was, but the point is that there was one language. And this reflected um, the unity of, of, of the people, like they were one people. Um, and even though there were variations in the people, but they all could communicate together um, as one. So then it continues, it says, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Okay, so Shinar it refers to uh, a region in, the, in Babylon, uh, which is in Mesopotamia, okay? So speaking about the people who went and settled um, in this place of Shinar in Babylon. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build a, uh, ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Okay, so we can ask this question is, you know, what are they doing, right? I'm going to ask this, what is it that they are trying to do here? Why is it that this is an important event in the, in the Bible? What is it that they're trying to accomplish? Does anyone want to give me an answer? What do you think that they wanted to accomplish here by doing this? Okay, so someone says to that they were going against the original commandment of filling the earth. Okay, so in that sense that they were trying to all be in one area. Okay, uh, somebody else says to be as good as God or to be as God. Yes, so, so here when it says, um, uh, let us be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. What, what is it that they mean by that? And also here when it says, um, uh, 
uh, a tower whose top is in the heavens, right? So the idea of making a, a great tower is, is like a symbol and the sign of the greatness of man, like the ingenuity of man, the cleverness of man. What is it that we're able to accomplish? What is it that we're able to build? We're making the city and we're making a tower and the tower can reach the heavens. What is the significance of the tower reaching the heavens? Amen. Um, saying essentially that we can reach heaven without God, that man can get to heaven without God, and that's concerning. Okay, very good. Thank you. So, so the idea that we can be as God, like God, reach God, do what God can do, right? All of those are, 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 are like the, the, like the undertones. Of here, because you can see they said, let us make a name for ourselves. Like this was a prideful thing that they were trying to do. Something else they were trying to do is because they knew that God obviously had sent the flood previously to this. And in the flood, everybody was drowned. Everybody died. Right. And so here as part of their rebellion against God. Right. And their belief that they could outsmart God and be more clever than God. They said, if we make a tall tower, then if God would send another flood, even though God had already promised that he would never send another flood. But if God would choose to send another flood, then they have a way to escape. They are going to climb up this tower and now they have a way to escape the flood. So it is like making themselves to be like God being in the heavens, being able to escape the wrath of God, making a name for themselves to be well known, to show off and pridefully boast of their accomplishments, right? And in every way they are boasting of themselves and their civilization. Okay, so it was really the, the the issue here is not the fact that they want to build a city or build a tower. I mean, obviously, we build cities and we build towers all the time. It was their motivation for why they were wanting to do it. Right. It was it was a boast against God. It was a rebellion against God. It was believing themselves to be better than him, that they can overcome him. They can defeat him, that they can show that human resourcefulness is greater than him. This is very much similar to the way that the pagan religions viewed their gods. So, for instance, in the Greek mythology, right, they, they had stories about how their gods could actually be overcome, that even though they were deities and even though they were divine gods, and yet there was ways that they could be overcome through the resourcefulness of people and through the different things that could happen. So the, the view here of God was more like he was an exalted human, right? He was exalted. He had special powers. He he lived in heaven. He could do more things than human beings. But the view is not that he is all powerful. The view is not that, you know, we are completely under his under his authority and that we are to submit to him. The, the view was more like we can manipulate him. We can we can be in competition with him that maybe he has a step up on us. But if we all gather together as one people, maybe as one people, we can we can outsmart him. We can be, you know, do something against him. Or, or overcome him or, or escape from him if we need. Okay, so this is kind of the way that they viewed God here. Someone who is not limitless, but someone who has a vulnerability. And if we all get together, we can exploit that vulnerability. Okay, also you can see that they didn't trust God, right? So not only did they consider that God was not as powerful as he really is, right? Because he has vulnerability, but they, they, they didn't trust what he said. Because he made it very clear to them that he would not send another flood. And he even said that the sign of the rainbow was going to be the, the like the, for a memorial to remember that God had promised this, that there would not be any more flood to cover the entire earth and to destroy the earth like before. So the fact that they're trying to make this tower and to escape from a potential flood also means that they didn't trust him, right? And, and, what, and what he had said to them, okay? So they saw him maybe as just this unjust destroyer of humanity, someone who could not be trusted. And so we have to have a backup plan just in case, you know, something that would happen. And, and, and instead of accepting that the flood that happened was actually a consequence of humanity's own sin, right? The fact that like the reason the flood came is because man sinned because of man's choices, right? Instead, they blamed God for it and they wanted this escape plan. Um, St. Augustine, 
he believes that the man called Nimrod, who was one of the those mentioned, the mighty warrior who was a mighty hunter that was mentioned in the genealogy in chapter 10, the previous chapter, St. Augustine believes that this Nimrod is actually the one who uh, spearheaded the building of the city of Babylon, that he was kind of like a leader, uh, like, a, like a strong, mighty figure against God and, and kind of respected by the people, and that he was like the one who, who started this idea of uh, building this tower. So this is the idea that they have now, and they want to build this tower and this city. So then it says, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built, okay? Um, as we were speaking before, uh, when we, we were speaking about uh, the, the verse that said, and the sons of God came to the daughters of men, and we said that um, this, the, 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 the generation that was produced from the sons of God and the daughters of men were called the Nephilim. In the Hebrew, it's called Nephilim. And we said in that time that the daughters, the sons of God represented those who are the children of the line of Shem, who were the righteous people. That's why they were called sons of God. And daughters of men were referring to like the carnal people, the wicked people, because it referred to them as being daughters of men, as opposed to being like elevated, exalted, righteous, like as the daughters of God, or like we are the children of God. Instead, we are like, this is like the children of men, meaning like those who are base, carnal, and, and wicked. So here, when, when it's saying that God came to see which the sons of men had built, it makes it clear, like the connotation here is that this is a wicked act, that the, these people are, are doing wickedness. And also this idea that saying that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Of course, this is a figure of speech, right? Um, this, is, this is something that uh, uh, is like God, obviously he's not coming down to see the city and the tower. He knows that of the city and the tower, he doesn't have to, to take any steps or anything like that. But this is more for us to kind of get a sense of like, like what God is, how God is perceiving the things that people are doing in a, in a, in a way that we as human beings can understand. Okay. God is always seeing, God knows the hearts of men. God knows what it is the people that are doing, but God is now his actions that he's about to do is going to be in response to the fact that they are building the city and the tower, right? So this is what is communicated to us. It's not that this is something he discovered, like, you know, surprised him, but this is in, in, in what he's about to do is in response to this event, okay? That he's, he saw the city and tower. And it says, and the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be held from them, okay? So, so, so see here when, when God is speaking about the unity of the people, so it's interesting that we can all be united together for a good reason and we can be united together for a bad reason. Here when God is saying, like we're always speaking about, we want to be in unity, right? And God wants us all to be one, right? To be one in one another. We want to be one with God, right? But here this unity that the people had was a unity of wickedness, right? When he says, indeed, the people are one, what does that mean? That he's saying all the people are 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 have one mind of disobedience, have one mind of rebellion, have one mind of of boasting against God, of wanting to be God, of wanting to reach heaven on their own, of, of believing that God is is you know can be defeated, right? This is what he means by they are one, okay? And they have one language. One of the reasons why they were able to be so united in their wickedness is because they spoke one language and they were able to communicate with each other this wickedness and to kind of come up with this plan of this tower that they were going to build, okay? Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech, okay? As before, we see God speaking about himself in the plural by saying us just as uh, when God, cre in the creation, God, he spoke himself about himself as us. And here, when we read this word, like God is speak, is referring to himself in the third, in the, in the, in the plural. This is when we, we use the Hebrew word Elohim, the name for God, Elohim, which is actually the plural name for God, as God is referring to himself in the plural. And we, when, when we say Elohim about God, remember the, the word God is actually El, right? El. 
but, but or eel. But when 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 we say Elohim, we are saying the plural of gods. It's emphasizing God as being exalted, as being great. And also, of course, it reveals to us the Trinity of God, even at a time when the Trinity was not yet very clearly expressed, right? That God was Trinity from the beginning, okay? So he says, let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech, okay? So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city, okay? Therefore, therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth, okay, of all the earth. So they wanted to build this tower, and it said what in verse 4? Lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. They wanted to make a mighty civilization that was impervious to attack, that was impervious to any flood that God would send, that was impervious to anything God would do to them, and they wanted to be this mighty people, right? Lest we be scattered abroad. And so instead, right, as a result of what God did, that's actually what ended up happening, is they ended up being scattered everywhere, right? Um, so, so, what is it that God did exactly? So he, he gave them different languages, okay? So he said, I'm going to confuse their language that they may not understand one another. And so as a result, no one could communicate with one another. They couldn't live together in the same place. And so everybody went out into their own area, in their own region, and, 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 and became separate, okay, from each other. So even though these people were united, like I said, right, they were united for the wrong reason. And so God made them not united. God divided the people so that they would avoid conspiring. So they would avoid like doing works of evil against him, right? Because this was not a good situation uh, that was happening. And so they were scattered. They stopped building the tower. They stopped building the city. And that's why it says the name will be called Babel because the name Babel means confusion. Okay. The, the, the name Babel means confusion. So St. Augustine, he believes that the whole world at this point was speaking Hebrew, like I mentioned before, and that after the confusion of the languages, the line of Shem, okay, which is the line of that eventually, that is the Jewish line, the line that eventually from whom Christ will come, okay, that this was the line that continued to speak Hebrew. This is what St. Augustine believes. So, so essentially the original language that people were speaking was Hebrew, and that the line of Shem and through his uh, ancestors or descendants, sorry, they continued to speak Hebrew while everybody else's language was confused. And so now essentially the, the, the Jewish line became separate, speaking their own language from the rest of the nations. Okay. Um, symbolically, okay, we can uh, read what St. Augustine also said about uh, how this compared to what happened with the apostles on the Pentecost. So St. Augustine, he says this. He says, through pride, tongues were divided, and through the humble apostles, tongues were united. If you compare what's happening here in this event with, which, with what happened on the day of Pentecost, you see that they are the exact opposites from one another. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles, and they began speaking in the languages of other people to unite all of God's people as one people. So that the word of God would be preached to everyone and everyone would have understanding so they would be united in obedience to God and in love for God, right? That's what happened on the Pentecost. Here, what's happening on this Tower of Babel uh, event is the exact opposite. Everyone was already united, but they were united for wickedness, to do evil. And so God divided their tongues. God made them to be separated, right? In order to uh, keep them from, from, from following their wicked plan. Okay, so this uh, event of the Tower of Babel is a very important one um, because actually we can see a lot of uh, similarities to what our modern society is today. You know, it's not about building towers and cities, but we are and have as a society created a society that has exalted itself and believes itself to be greater and better than God. We do not need God. We do not need the church because we have replaced him. You know, Frederick Nietzsche was a famous atheist. He said, God is dead, right? And, and what does he mean when he says God is dead? 
It means that we do not need God anymore. The concept and the idea of God is dead. The, the importance of religion is gone because we have now found explanation for everything that exists. And so we do not need him, right? We do not need the concept. The idea that the only reason that people believed in God before was simply because of ignorance, because we didn't understand how things worked. And now that we've found scientific reasoning for many things, we say, oh, well, well, we don't need to invoke God anymore. We don't need there to be a God anymore for us to make sense of the world. Instead, we make sense of the world without God. Okay. But this is a very flawed argument because number one, even if we understand the way that God works, why is that? It's because God is a God of order. His nature and his characteristics are orderly. And he wants us to understand a lot of things about the world and how it works because that's the way he made it. It's like, it's like if you if you like have, you know, you know someone who is very organized, who is very orderly, who who does things in a certain way. And I begin to understand him through his way, like the way that he does things and understand what he is doing, right? Just because I understand him, I understand what he's doing, understand the things that he does, doesn't mean that he doesn't exist. Like imagine if some inventor, he created some complicated uh, device, you know, or some complicated piece of machinery. And at first I look at this machinery and I don't understand how it works, okay? So I say, well, there must some mystical person must have created it, you know, some very intelligent person, some, some genius must have created this, I don't understand it. But then after a long time, as I study this piece of machinery, I begin to understand the machinery. I begin to understand how everything works together, how, how different parts of it connect to other parts and what its purpose is and all this, I begin to understand. But now that I have concluded that I understand how this machine works, at no point in time does it occur to me to now to believe that it was not created by that same person that created it. I don't believe because I now understand how the machine works and that means that there was no creator of the machine. I don't consider that that creator was somehow or that this machine somehow came to be by itself simply because, the, because I understand how it works now, right? So just as that is a ridiculous argument for people to make about normal everyday things, but obviously we know that things that are created were created by somebody, right? And simply understanding how it works doesn't take away from that fact at all, nor does it occur to any of us to think that just because I understand something that nobody created it. The same is true with all of creation. The same is true with the world. Right? The same is true of us. Just because we understand more than we understood before doesn't mean that it still wasn't created. And actually, even those who understand, we who understand maybe the way the world works more and more, cannot create the world. We cannot create everything that exists from nothing. Only God is the one who does that. And it is through his goodness that he allows us to understand. Because it is through understanding, it is through science which is the understanding of the world around us, that we are able to benefit from all of these things that God created and make technology and make, you know, build civilizations and cities and all this because God allowed us to understand because he is orderly and logical and he did think things in a certain way. So here, what, what these people here in the Tower of Babel are expressing is a rebellion against God saying, we do not need God. We are better than God. We can, we can, we can, you know, endure God's attacks, we can, we can overcome God, right? And, and, and again, like in our society today, this is what, what's happening, right? People believe that we do not need God anymore. We can live without him and we are more clever than him. We, we consider that all the Bible is a bunch of contradictions. It's just the mythology, nothing about it is real because we are attacking everything that points to God, that reminds us of God, that, that, that tells us about the way God wants us to live and reminds us that we are just the humble creation, but we are not the creators, right? So we always look back to this example that even from very, very, very early on, that, that it was sown within the, the corrupted heart of man, the desire to be God, to overcome God, to, 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 to be in competition with him, to not need him anymore. And so when we begin to see that these feelings and these thoughts are coming to our mind, we just remember that this is something that, that we struggle with, right? That, that just because we feel power, just because we feel um, knowledge and strength, doesn't mean that, 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 that we are not vulnerable, doesn't mean that we are immortal, doesn't mean that we are invincible. And, and, and certainly maybe during the times that we live in now, more than you know, any other time, we sense our vulnerability and we sense how frail we are as people and how frail our civilization is 
to remind us again of our need for God and how much you know He is over to He's able to protect us from from so many things. Okay. Um, the next part here, after the part of the Tower of Babel, is we go back to this genealogy. Okay. Um, where he speaks about this uh, genealogy uh, starting from the, the line of Shem, okay? Um, so I'm going to read it for you, um, and then only at the very last part, then am I going to just make a small comment about Abraham, because Abraham is essentially, it's going to show how Abraham's line, how Abraham came from the line of Shem, starting with Shem, okay? So it says, this is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Salah. And, and he begot Salah, Arphax, after he begot Salah, Arphaxad lived 400 years, uh, 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Salah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Some of this genealogy is repeated from before, from the previous genealogy. And as I mentioned before, this person, Eber, is actually where some people say we got the name Hebrew, okay? because Eber and Hebrew have the same root. Eber lived 40, uh, 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Reu. After he begot Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Rio lived 32 years and begot Sirug. After he begot Sirug, Rio lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Sirug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Sirug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Tira. After he begot Tira, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Tira lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Tira. So Tira is the father of Abraham. And we know that initially when, you know, when Abraham is first mentioned, his name was not Abraham, but his name was Abram. Okay, because God is going to change his name later to reflect the covenant that God is making with him. But for now, his name is Abram. So we have Tira is the father, okay, who has these three sons, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. Right? So we know that Lot is the nephew of Abram. Okay? And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Okay? So where was this family, Terah, in Ur of the Chaldeans, which was in the region of Babylon? This was originally where they were. Because remember, all, all the people right, when in the Tower of Babel, they were uh, in the Babylonian region. Okay? Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son, Abram, and his grandson, Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, Sarai, his son, Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. Okay? So, um, yeah, so Ur, you can see Ur there is at the, this tip over here at the very right is uh, the Persian Gulf. And so, so this is in Iraq, these rivers here in Iraq, and Ur is there. And so the people, they traveled to Haran, which is up to the northwest. Okay, that's where they went. So the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Okay, so this map here kind of shows um, the, if you can see this uh, dotted blue line, kind of shows kind of the, the direction that Abram took at the very beginning, okay? Um, he started out in the region of Babylon in Iraq, okay? And God told him to travel to Canaan. This is where he was supposed to go. But he first stopped in Haran, and he stopped there for quite some time, about 15 years. And he waited there until his father, Terah, died. After his father died, then he continued to Canaan. Canaan is modern-day Israel, which is the promised land. So God was taking Abram, right, from where he started in Babylon. And he was bringing him to the land that he would inherit, that his ancestors would inherit, which is modern-day Israel, 
Okay, he's making this covenant with him. Okay, so now uh, begins this new era we're going to speak about, which is the era of the patriarchs. Okay, starting in uh, Genesis chapter 12. So it says, now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Okay. So it, we know that Abram started in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is in Babylon. Then he went to Haran. So this calling that, that we're reading here in Genesis 12 verse 1 is the calling of God while Abram was in Haran. So he's already told from before Abram to leave Ur, the Chaldeans, and go to Canaan. Uh, Abram began traveling. He stopped in Haran, okay? And he stopped in Haran for about 15 years. And there, after his father died, here God is uh, telling uh, Abram to again leave this place, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you, meaning go to Canaan, okay? Uh, Abram, the name Abram means a respectable father. That's what the name Abram means. And later when his name is changed to Abraham, Abraham means father of many nations. So again, that reflects the change, reflects the promise, the covenant that God made with him. And Abram was the 10th in the succession of the fathers since Shem. So if you look at the genealogy, there is 10 generations between Shem uh, and Abram. Okay. We also know about Abram that his family were pagans, okay? And Abram was faithful to God, even though his family, right, were pagans. And we read this actually in Joshua chapter 24, right? It says, and Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, okay? The other side of the river is in Babylon and they served other gods, then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him through all of the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac, right? So God is reminding, so in the book of Joshua, God is reminding the people of the original covenant that was made with Abraham and how God took him from this land in Babylon and he brought him to the promised land and how Terah, the father of Abraham, was actually a pagan worshiper, a pagan idol worshiper. Okay? He worshipped other gods, but Abraham was faithful to the Lord God. Okay, um, Saint Jerome he speaks about this: the idea that God is calling the righteous to do great things, even when they are surrounded by sin and evil. Right? Like someone who maybe is surrounded in a wicked environment and a sinful environment, but they keep themselves pure and free from sin. And, and continue to, to obey God, continue a life of repentance, continue wanting to please God. Even when they grow up in a sinful and difficult environment, God still sees their righteousness and can bring them out of this. This is what St. Jerome uh, says. He says, he got out of Ur of the Chaldeans and from Mesopotamia and went on to seek a land he did not know in order not to lose him whom he found. He's referring to God. He found it difficult to keep both his land and his God at the same time. Since his youth, he has, our, he has been ready to realize the words of the prophet, I am a stranger with you, a sojourner as all my fathers were. He was called a Hebrew, meaning a transient. He was not content with the contemporary privileges, but used to forget those things which are behind and reach forward to those things which are ahead. Putting before his eyes the words of the psalmist, they go from strength to strength. Thus, his name carried a secret meaning, opening the way before you to seek what is others and not what is yours. One very nice thing here I like about this quote from St. Jerome is he said that the word Hebrew means a transient. A transient meaning like someone who is not, is not stable or it doesn't have like a permanent home, right? So the idea of being transient is like when we say that we are sojourners, right? We are travelers. We are, we are not saying that we are permanently in one location or the other because this world is not our home. So St. Jerome is saying about uh, Abraham that he was, he, 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 it was easy for him to move from one place to another to another based on the calling of God because Abraham was not 
uh, like like didn't have roots in the world, right? Instead, he wanted to go with, to wherever God commanded him to go, and he was not stubborn or or disobedient to that command. And we see this uh, repeated often in the life of Abraham. For instance, later when Abraham uh, is asked by God to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, we see Abraham very quickly, even though this isn't what he wanted by any means, and he didn't even understand why God was asking him to do that, we see him very quick, quickly obey without any complaining, and he went in to do it, okay? So there, this is a quality that we find about Abraham, that whenever God calls him from one place to another, or from one situation to another, he's very quick to, to listen. He's very quick to obey, okay? Um, someone is asking, why does God want to keep moving Abraham to different lands? So God has already prepared ahead of time this promised land, the, the nation of Israel, which was to be for the people. And Abraham was the one who was the first patriarch of the Jewish people. And God was establishing this promise to him. So he was bringing Abraham from this land in Babylon. He was bringing him to a land, a new land, the, Can the, the land of Canaan. And he was telling him, look around you. This entire land is the land that I'm giving you for you and your descendants that will be like more than the sand of the seashore and the stars in the sky. So, so, so this is why God pre prepared this land for Abraham, then told Abraham to move and to come to this place. Okay. <clears throat> so God here is calling Abraham again to Canaan from Haran. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay. This blessing that, that God gave to Abraham was realized in the birth of Jesus Christ. Right. Because Jesus Christ was born from the lineage of Abraham. Okay. All of the families of the earth shall be blessed through Abraham because it is through his seed came the Messiah who is the savior of the whole world. And this is why God blesses Abraham and blesses his descendants. He chose for himself this special people who was his people. And in the Old Testament, this special people that was his people were the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, right? They were the chosen people of God. They were the ones whom God was protecting. They were the ones whom God uh, you know, gave, gave them all of the commandments, gave them all of the prophecies, gave them everything to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah, okay? In the New Testament, after the coming of Christ, this blessing and this status of being the children of God is to those who are in the church. In the New Testament, the church is the children of God. The church is the one that is blessed. The church is the one who, through whom all people are blessed because through the church is salvation. Okay? So, so in the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel. In the New Testament is the figurative Israel, the symbolic Israel, which is the church. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Okay. So again, we see God, Abraham responding quickly to this calling, right? He didn't have just like a theoretical faith, but he had a practical one who was willing to take action, right? And he was willing to take action without understanding. And this is very important because oftentimes we are not willing to do anything without understanding. We are not willing to move unless we understand, unless we fully understand, unless we know exactly what is going to happen tomorrow, unless we have weighed every option and we know for sure that this option is the best versus this option. But here God is not didn't tell any of this to Abraham. Abraham had no way to know where he was going. He had no way of, of, he never saw this land before. He had never been there before. He probably never knew anyone that had been there before. Like God was completely taking him to this completely unknown place. And, and God was saying, just trust me to take you where is, where, to where is good. Okay. Maybe today we don't have a situation like this where God is telling us to move into a place and, you know, if, if he did, then we would probably look it up on GPS and go on the Internet and research everything about it beforehand. But God often takes us in other journeys, in other places, without knowing. You know, let's say someone gets uh, sick and 
The sickness is a very unknown, uncertain thing. Which direction does it go? Where is it going to take us? Or a loved one that gets sick, or a problem with our finances, or a family problem, or or you know problems with other relationships that we have. All kinds of problems that we deal with in life are very much filled with uncertainty. There's no internet that I can go to and figure out where is that going to lead me? What is going to be the next step that's going to happen in my life? And yet, God is saying, I want you to come with me on this journey. I want you, I'm taking you on this place, and this place might have hardships and difficulties, but I want you to believe that in the end, I'm leading you to a good place. And this is something we can learn from Abraham, because Abraham showed us repeatedly what it means to have a real practical faith, one where we are following God, even though he has not given us all of the information that we would like. He has not revealed to us what is going to happen because God wants us to trust him, right? The more that we trust God, the more our relationship with him grows stronger because we have to rely on him as a father who cares for us, as a shepherd who cares for his sheep, where the sheep doesn't ask the shepherd, where are we going, right? The sheep couldn't even understand the answer if the sheep asked the shepherd, where are we going? The shepherd just takes the sheep to a good place, right? And so it should be the same with us where we just trust that God is leading us to a good place, even though he doesn't reveal to us everything we would like to know. Uh, someone is saying, by comparing Abraham to Saul, Saul didn't trust God's plan, but Abraham trusted God's plan. Yes, that's, that's right. <clears throat> okay. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. So Abraham now is coming into the land of Canaan, which will later be called Israel, okay? And he is going to this city called Shechem, and he's seeing the Canaanites, the, 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 the indigenous people that are living there in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Okay. Number one, this is the first time in scripture that we read that the Lord appeared to someone. Right. At no point before this had it ever said that the Lord appeared to someone. Okay. Um, also, we see that as Noah had done before, after he came out of the ark, he offered a sacrifice. He built an altar, offered a sacrifice. We see here also Abraham is offering a sacrifice on the altar. Again, this is before the law of Moses. So it tells us that God had communicated to the people, how is it that, 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 that they should offer sacrifice to him? Right? It wasn't written in scripture. And the Bible doesn't say anything about the details of how God wants sacrifices to be made, how offerings to be made. And yet we see several times people are offering sacrifices that are pleasing to God, right? The first person we see offering sacrifice pleasing to God is Abel, okay? We see Noah does it as well. We see Abraham do it as well, right? They knew that this is the way that God wanted uh, people to offer sacrifice to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. So Abraham, Abraham journeyed, uh, going on still toward the south. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. Okay, so now we see this other challenge that Abram faces. God told Abram to go to this place of Cain. But when he got there, he saw that there was a famine in the land, right? It was difficult for him because there wasn't enough food. So Abram decided that he was going to go to Egypt because Egypt was a very fertile place because even during times of famine, um, because of the Nile River, there was always fertile ground in Egypt for them to grow crops. And so Egypt seemed like a good place to go during this time of famine. Some believe, some of the church fathers believe that Abraham didn't do anything wrong by going to Egypt and that this trip was sanctioned by God. But there are many fathers who believe that Abraham here at this point, instead of seeking divine help and asking God what he should do in the face of this famine, that instead he went to Egypt um, on his own because he wanted to escape this famine. 
And this wasn't something that was sanctioned by God or allowed by God, and God didn't want him to go. Okay, This idea of going to other nations for help instead of going to God for help is a repeated theme all throughout the history of the Israelites. Okay, And actually, in, in Isaiah 31, verse 1, God is speaking against the idea of seeking other nations instead of coming to God. And he says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Now, this statement here was not said about Abraham. It was said about the nation of Israel, you know, hundreds of years later, because whenever God would allow the enemies of Israel to trouble the Israelites as a consequence for their idolatry in order for them to wake up from their idolatry and, and repent and begin to follow God again. God allowed these nations to, to trouble Israel and to be their enemies. Instead of repenting and changing their ways and admitting to God that they had sinned, instead the Israelites would go to Egypt or other neighboring nations and ask them for military support in order to defeat their enemies. So that's why God here is saying, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Meaning the whole reason I have created this struggle from your enemies against you is because I want you to come to me for support and I will show you my love by casting these enemies away from you when I see that you're repenting. But instead of doing that, instead of repenting, instead of changing, instead of taking responsibility, you are going to these other nations and Egypt was a common one that they would go to for help and support. So here he's saying, woe to those who go down to Egypt. So it, it, it kind of applies in the sense here with Abraham because Abraham is going to Egypt because in there he feels that he's going to get protection and, 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 and have his needs met. The question is, is this something that God allowed or not? Is this something God wanted him to do or not? And many of the church fathers would say that it was not. Okay. So then it says, and it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. Okay. Um, so, so here, uh, Abraham is contemplating a deception. Okay. Um, he's, he's saying, well, Sarai was a relative of his. Okay. But his primary relationship with her was as her husband. So she was his wife. And so he has this fear now when he goes to Egypt. He, he, he's afraid that if they know that he is married to her and they want to take her as a wife for themselves, that they will kill him and they will take her. Okay. So instead he said, just don't tell them that I am your husband. And so they will allow me to live. So essentially he's saying, well, they might take you as a wife for, for, for themselves but that's better than me dying, okay? Um, so, you know, this is a fault of his, you know? He, he is deceiving. He, he is not faithful in this point to believe that God is going to protect them, okay? And, and we see this all started with him going to Egypt. So, you know, oftentimes one sin leads to another sin. You know, here his initial mistake of going to Egypt then resulted in him uh, having to, like, say this lie in order to protect himself, uh, and so on. Okay. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. So he was going to take her as, a, as his wife. And he doesn't even know that she's married. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Okay. So God punished Pharaoh and um, his house. Why? Because he took her as his wife. So again, God has blessed Abram. We read before, right? I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. God has made a special blessing around Abram because he is the chosen of God as a patriarch, right? So whoever is harassing Abraham now and his family, God will harass. And so here God is defending Abram. And, and it's interesting that even though what 
Abraham did was wrong. And even though Pharaoh here is innocent and he, he doesn't know that she is already married and no one told him, right? And yet God is still uh, defending Abraham. And he's still defending him because of the blessing that he put on him. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you not say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. For, for now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. Okay. Um, so Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Okay. So in the end, Pharaoh acted honorably. Okay. And that when he knew that he was... Uh, that she was his, his wife. He didn't try to detain her or keep her or fight or resist. He actually believed that what was happening to him came because he had acted dishonorably or he acted without knowledge of, of, of who she was. And God used the situation as a way of communicating to Abram that it's time for you to leave, right? Like, like this isn't the place you need to be here in Egypt. You need to go back to Canaan because here in Egypt, where you thought you were going to find protection and you thought you were going to find food and all this, it actually became for you like even more trouble. So we know that after this, Abram leaves uh, Egypt and he goes back to Canaan. Okay, that's a good stopping point for today. Uh, next time, we'll start from chapter 13, uh, God willing, where we read about the story of Abram and Lot and uh, a disagreement that they had uh with each other. Okay. Uh, let's uh, conclude in a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, we thank you, O Lord, for this day. We thank you, O Lord, for all the examples of those important figures in the Bible that remind us of how we should be obedient to you. And also of those stories that remind us, O Lord, that we should not disobey you and we should not rebel against you. Strengthen us and be with us and all your people. Grant us a heart that is full of submission and love for you and a desire to please you in all things help us to serve one another from our hearts and to be thankful and faithful always to you until the very end through the prayers of saint mary archangel michael saint paul saint mark and all your saints here's as we pray thankfully our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Have a good night.